We are a couple minutes early, but maybe that'll make it to where I don't go until long after 10 o'clock. So we do have a little bit of ground to cover today. So let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you're coming again. Jesus, you're, you're going to come back. You're going you're to set all things right. You're going to entirely eradicate sin and death. You're going to make all things new. And how we long for that day. And I pray that you would help us today to be humble, that we, as we are looking at some of these different views of, of how to interpret the uh, millennial kingdom, that we would um, have our eyes on you, on your word, that you would help us to rightly divide the word, um, and that we would be gracious to those who come to different conclusions. Um, Help us to be those who really do promote the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, with that lead-in, today, there are, there are four primary views for the Millennial Kingdom. We are going to look at three of them today, I hope. It depends, some of it depends on how many questions y'all have, uh, which is fine. You know I like questions. So um, let's, uh, let's kind of dive in. The four primary views on the millennial kingdom are amillennialism, postmillennialism, historic premillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. Well, okay, so the question is, when did it become historical? And the answer to that is, I'm not sure. Um, that one there, frankly, is the most difficult one to pin down as to exactly how they, you know, what hermeneutic they use and when. Because if you listen to a historical premillennialist, they sound like an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. Not so much the post, more of the, more of the ah. So that one is the most difficult to tie down. Um, so let's deal with amillennial first, the amillennialist, amillennialism. Now, uh, there are a number of books that you can get if you want to actually read this. What I would recommend to you is something like this book, this book is, it's called The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views. And the reason for doing that is that this book has an essay written by an author who espouses each of the four views. So you are hearing it not from somebody describing something that they do not hold to. You are hearing it from their perspective. And that is probably helpful. And these books, you can get them for the millennial kingdom. I'll bet you there's one out there for the, in fact, I know there's one out there for the rapture. And um, there you can find books like this on talking about uh, covenantal theology versus dispensational theology. But it's good if you actually get the point of view from somebody who holds that view. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, 
it's, it's, it's going to get painted, and it might get painted just a little differently. And so if you're interested in actually, you know, seeing what they think, then a book like this is, is something good for you. So the amillennialist is, is going to say, number one, they don't like the name because millennial means what? Literally, millennium, a thousand. And what does it mean when you put an A in front of it? There is not, it's not a thousand. And so uh, sometimes that is taken to, you know, some people will take that and say, well, these people don't believe there is a millennial kingdom, period. And they would take offense to that because that's not true in their view. What they are going to do, um, the, uh, typically what an amillennialist view is going to be is that the millennial kingdom is now. We are in the millennial kingdom. Satan is bound and it's not a literal thousand years. It's just a long time. And that is going to be culminated by the second coming of Christ. There may very well be, in fact, there will be a tribulation, a time of tribulation at the end. Pretty much if you're a mill, then you're, you're going to hold to a post-tribulational rapture. So the church extends all the way until the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ, in the Amil view, is a single event. Now, when you see that, you're, you're going to see this uh, put in, that there's, you have a single event, and then you have a multi-stage event, where there's at least two different stages to it. Now, what they're getting at is, if it's a single stage, then you have the second coming of Christ, and everything else is grouped around that. All right? So the Amil view is going to say that whatever rapture occurs happens immediately prior to or at the time of the second coming, when Jesus is coming in the clouds with power and great glory. They will also view that there is one resurrection. There is one resurrection. Everybody gets raised at the same time whoever's not actually still alive. So believing, unbelieving, they all get brought up at the same time. And so, and with the Amil view, they have no real distinction between the church and Israel. And we're going to find that in the in these different views, that really is kind of the key factor. If you hold that God still has a plan for national Israel and that all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled to national Israel and that they are actually going to regain the land, then you're going to end up as a dispensational premillennialist because that's the only place that you can have. That's the only home you're going to be able to have under these views. All the rest of them blur the lines at best between the church and Israel. So, when it comes to amillennial, they typically look at 
eschatology in two, in two waves, so to speak. You have inaugurated eschatology. What do you think that would be if it's inaugurated? It's already begun. So this is, this is eschatology that has already begun. So this is, this is now. This is today. This is in the present. And then they're going to have future eschatology, stuff that is still out in the future. So, under inaugurated eschatology, Christ has won the decisive victory over sin, death, and Satan. Now, when did that happen? That's at the cross, right? And so, here you have that Jesus has conquered sin, and death, and the devil. Satan is living on borrowed time because his fate is sealed, Right? And so here you have, uh, when it comes to uh, the ultimate issues of history, those are already decided. God has a date on his calendar for when Jesus is coming back. God has a date on his calendar for when there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God has a date on his calendar for when um, the eternal state is going to begin. And those are all true. Those things are all true. And so you've heard the statement before that this guy's dead and he just doesn't know it yet. Well, that kind of applies here to the devil, except I think he probably does know. So it's only a matter of time until history is brought to its final consummation. Secondly, the kingdom of God is both present and future. Now, this one is... Again, what they're going to hold to is that um, in the, Christ now is reigning from heaven. And there is not a future primarily Jewish kingdom. That's where they're, that, again, that's, that they're, they're getting away. That's one of the big differences here between amillennialism and premillennialism. And so that's not going to happen. And so when you look at the book of Ezekiel, where you have a kingdom which certainly has um, similar characteristics to the eternal state, yet you still see sin, you still have sacrifices on the altar, um, and you have a prince from the line of David who is physically ruling, they would say, that doesn't happen. That means something else. So the reign of God is dynamically active in human history through Jesus, through Christ. And they would say that you, it's, it's somewhat of an already and not yet. So there are things that are possessed now, but they are not possessed in their fullest. So the kingdom of God exists now. That's where they're going to go back and they're going to grab uh, back in Matthew when Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you. And they're going to say, that's because it's already initiated. It's already inaugurated. 
but we don't have the full manifestation yet of that kingdom. One of the other things, the Amil is, they do this, but they are not as, um, the, the post mills really take, uh, make this an emphasis. Christians should seek to influence society at every level. And so it, that we should be involved in the political realm and we should take, we should seek to institute Christian principles in every area of life. And so you tend to see a little more of a concentration on social issues and on uh, having political influence. Just about any Christian that you see on the national stage who is pushing the idea of a Christian political party or having that type of an issue is probably going to be post-mill. And if they're not post-mill, they're a-mill. Third, though the last day is still future, we're in the last days now. Is that any tremendous surprise? In fact, is there any dispute that we're in the last days now? There shouldn't be, because what did, John, what did the Apostle John say? Now is the last days. So if it was true for the Apostle John in the first century, then it's going to be hard for us to say that, no, that, that's not true. And so uh, we're in the last days. Fourth point, as far as the thousand-year reign in Revelation 20 is concerned, we're in the millennium now. Satan is bound now. And the way that, and, and the way that we refer to this and if, with Satan being bound is that Satan is unable to hinder the spread of the gospel. That's what they take this to mean when Satan is bound. The gospel is able to go forth and people are able to be saved and redeemed. And the dead in Christ are already reigning with him in heaven. That's the idea of the kingdom being now. It's not just now in the, in the fact that Christ is reigning from heaven. The dead in Christ are also reigning with him in heaven. That's all inaugurated eschatology. Now, I've got some interesting looks coming up at, at me. So, questions for up till now. Don't be shy. I may not be able to answer them, but don't be shy. You're being shy. Come on now. If you're going to have the quizzical look, Gunner. Okay, so Gunnar's point is that we should expect it to happen that America is going to start taking a lesser place of prominence on the world stage. And I realize I'm 
I'm editing your words a little bit. Now, if you are a premillennialist, a premillennialist would look at that and say, that is absolutely correct. A postmillennialist is going to be grabbing for the Maalocks because they're going to be having a serious case of heartburn over that. So again, it depends on what your view is. So if you're premillennial, I would absolutely agree with that statement. So again, now, and we need to back up here. In fact, this is, a couple of guys made this comment in this book. This is a family discussion. All five men, there were four authors and there was a, a, an editor. All five of these guys are in heaven. Which means they know the answer now. There are godly men. There are giants of the faith who would look at eschatology differently than we do as a church. And so do not. That's why, again, um, it is significantly dangerous and, frankly, sinful to look at somebody who holds a different view on eschatology and question their salvation, question their integrity, question their sincerity, question their love for Christ. Okay. Mm-hmm. You bet. Right, and there, are, and there are certain verses, so Danny's bringing up R.C. Sproul. Uh, when R.C. Uh, became, uh, went over to, to post-tribulational, the post-tribulational view. The guy's a giant of the faith. Where is he now? He's in heaven. He's, he's in the presence of Christ. And so, and so again, the, the idea here is, is that don't, um, because somebody holds to a different view, and by the way, something else that frankly we ought to throw in here, a lot of this, it does matter how you were raised. If you, are pres if you were raised in a Presbyterian church, if you were raised in a Reformed Baptist church, there is a high likelihood that you were hearing either the amillennial view or the post-millennial view from your youth. And those things, when you come later in life and you're trying to now sit down and, and look at, okay, what does the Bible actually have to say about this subject? Th some of those things can be difficult. Dave.
which means, and you're all familiar with that term, pan-millennialism. Everything's going to pan out in the end. All right? Okay, that is a great question. You have people who are spiritual heavyweights ending up on different sides of this issue. They're on different sides of the aisle. And I am a bear of small brain. I can't compete with these guys. No way. So why look into it? Number one, because it colors how you view the Bible first. And second, it is absolutely going to influence how you view life today. All right? When there is difficulty, um, the idea of hope is meant to be elevating. When we have Christian hope, that is intended to take us from the depths and bring us up out of that, set our feet upon a rock and put a new song in our mouth. When you have an understanding or when you come to an understanding of what is coming next, it makes it to where you can be hopeful, you can be grateful because you have an idea of what God is doing on his time schedule. And secondly, we should be firmly convinced. You should, be, you should go through. You should tackle that issue. Deuteronomy 29.29 gets used a lot, right? Does everybody know Deuteronomy 29.29? Because you should. Go for it. Okay, the secret things belong to the Lord. Is that true? That is absolutely true. Is that the end of the verse? No, it's not. What's the rest of the verse? The words of this law. Exactly. The secret things are for the Lord, but the things revealed are for us and for our sons forever that we may obey the words of this law. So what does that mean relative to this? We need to know it. It has been revealed. It's on the page. God's words have been recorded for us, <clears throat> excuse me, in writing so that we may have them. Those things have been revealed. And therefore, we are responsible to know it, to understand it, and to do it. And so, is this something that is you know, are there things to wrestle through? Sure. How many times do you hear from the pulpit here? <clears throat> it's one of those words, one of those phrases that you kind of figure is going to happen. Well, commentators are split on this issue. How many things do you hear from the pulpit here where commentators are unanimous on an issue? There's not many. If you want to talk about a historical fact, okay, did Jesus come as an infant? Did he, was Jesus born of a virgin? Boy, you know what? You've got 
commentators who you might have issues with on that. They're not good commentaries, all right? But they're out there. And so, you know, when you talk about higher criticism or textual criticism, mostly on the higher criticism, what do those people tend to do with the supernatural aspects of the Bible? You know, that's where Thomas Jefferson created his Bible, right? You know, I don't think Jesus said something like that, so I'm going to cut that out. That's supernatural. That can't be, so I'm going to cut that out. And so you end up with something that is far, far less than God's word. Gunnar, did you have another question? Well, and that's true of any nation, right? That's true. And so if you're going to... Uh, America is going down the drain. I mean, I, I wouldn't even try to dispute that. All you got to do is look around. Mm -hmm. Well, and I certainly hope that we do as a country. Um, and again, that is influenced by your view of what is yet unrevealed history. Do you understand what I mean by unrevealed history? Is God sovereign over everything? Does God know everything that's happening and why and bringing all those things about to, you know, after the counsel of his own will? So in other words, it's already written in a book. We just haven't gotten to read that page yet. Dave. No, I mean, there, there's a, I mean, because, no, 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 there's the, that, that's talking about the perspicuity of scripture and the whole idea that God is his own interpreter. You know, these things, um, you know, you know what's interesting? Most of the people on this, who write on this subject, the topic is very clear to them. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. And there are a number of others that are just as clear. Um, okay, so, all right, rabbit trail. Election. Is election clear in the scripture? 
it is. Ah, now we're scratching it. Now we're talking about that issue where it's very clear as to, you know, God chooses. He makes a sovereign choice because he's God and he has the right to do so. And some people look at that and go, that cannot be. Because if that is true, then that means that this also has to be true of God. And that's bad. And so, therefore, this cannot be, and they come up with something else. There are a lot of issues. And, again, when you talk about eschatology, eschatology is a section of systematic theology. You realize that you can have virtual lockstep views about all the rest of systematic theology and differ in this, this one area. So again, when you start, we're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about something that if you believe this, you're going to be kept out of heaven. We're not talking about that. So going back over to this other issue real quickly. When you're reading a commentary, you need to view, you need to be looking at how they view the scripture. Are they coming to it in humility or are they holding something else over it? If they're holding something else over it, toss the commentary. Toss it. It's not going to help you. Am I reaching, am I scratching that enough, Dave, or is there something else you'd like to bring up there, bud? Yes. Don't worry about it. They're good words. You know, one of the other uh, comments that one of these guys made, um, books like this tend to, tend to focus 
on and tend to highlight differences. The fact of the matter is those things that we believe in common are far more numerous than the ones that we tend to have differences about. And the ones that, that are in common, frankly, some of those are, are the ones that are really, really, really important, Dave. And, and, and again, it's what is the filter, what is the interpretive grid that you are using to view the scripture? It's interesting that um, that comes up on this issue. Because if you take the Bible as it is written, if you view the Old Testament as being as determinative and as um, of equal value for interpretation as the New Testament, you end up being premillennial. There are certain passages of Scripture that if you take them as they are written, that's the position you end up in. And in fact, there are those in the ah-mill and the post-mill who would look at that and say and admit that to be true because it is true. When you get to Revelation chapter 20 where six times in seven verses it says there's a thousand year period. Well, I, if he keeps using the same number over and over and over again, then what's kind of the natural thing that you would take from that on just reading it? There's a thousand year period. The only reason it becomes something other than a thousand year period is because you're bringing something else to bear on that passage. That's why. And again, you can be a faithful student of God's word and you're trying to, these people are trying, they would look at this and say, I'm trying to use the whole counsel of God. All right? And they are. They tend to give more weight to some areas whereas somebody from a different view is going to put more weight in a different area. Does that make sense? So again, uh, I, I encourage you, wrestle with these things. Wrestle with them. What's it going to hurt? What harm is in that for you? Susie. 
It is. You bet. Just because things are difficult to understand does not mean it, that it has no profit for studying them. Come on. All right, who in here has got their head wrapped around the idea of the Trinity? I mean, you've got that thing dialed. You could explain it to a three-year-old. Or you could explain it to a PhD and make it to where they understand it to the same level as you do. Well, I'll tell you what, that one, you can swim around that one for a long, long time. And praise God that you can. God's that big. And the more that you go through that, you realize just how big he is and how small we are. Which then drives us, hopefully, to a position of what? Humility. And so again, some of these things, if for no other reason than that, they're worth tackling. God's a whole lot bigger than we are. God's a whole lot smarter. He's a whole lot wiser than we are. Gunner. Water, steam, and ice, uh, water, liquid, the solid, the, the vapor form. Um, the only problem with water, steam, and ice is they can't be all three at the same time. That's the only problem with them. It is, and that, and that, and that again, is that's where you know, we can come up with an analogy, and you get to a point where the analogy fails because God's bigger than the analogy. All right, let's go to future eschatology. So, the Amils would say that the signs of the times have both present and future relevance. So, what, they're gonna, what they mean by that is this, that you have the, the signs of the times are present now. They will become more intense as time goes on and you, and you near the actual fulfillment. So the return of Christ is going to be preceded by certain signs. Now, if you stop, look up, look up. When you talk about the signs of the times, think about that phrase for a moment. What comes to your mind when you talk about the signs that are going to precede the second coming of Christ? What comes to your mind? Earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, temple rebuilt, famine. Yeah, the things that Jesus talked about, right? Okay, the word of God going to all the nations. Now, notice that that one is different in, in some ways than all the other ones that just got mentioned. All the other ones that just got mentioned, you would find in Matthew 24, right? When the disciples come to Jesus and they say, you know, what, what, are, what are the signs of your coming and the signs of the end of the age? And that's, what, that's the list that Jesus starts off with. The Amils look at this and they say, 
that's not the signs of the times that we need to be concentrating on. They would say that the signs of the times are going to be the preaching of the gospel to all the nations, the conversion of the fullness of Israel, the great apostasy, the great tribulation, and the coming of Christ. Now, the coming, the great tribulation, that's going to incorporate some of those other things that Jesus was talking about, right? Wars, rumors of wars, famine, signs in the heavens, and, and all of those things. And they look at the, the fulfillment of these as not a new phenomenon, but simply an intensification. Now, keep in mind, again, that because we're in the millennial kingdom now, then the reason that they will invariably be post-tribulational on the rapture is because the church, by its nature, has always been in tribulation. That has been true since the book of Acts. It's been true since the first century. And so because that is true, what is happening toward the end is simply an intensification of things that have been going on throughout history. Okay? Second, we talked about briefly earlier, the second coming is going to be a single event. So the rapture, the resurrection, the physical coming of Christ, uh, judgment, all of those things are one event. They're contemporaneous. They're happening, you know, in, in quick order. There's no uh, separation of time. So if you take a literal reading of, of Revelation 19, you'll find that there is a resurrection that is separated from another resurrection by a thousand years. They would say, no, that's not the case. It's all one event. And so there's not, uh, there's no stages. So when you talk, uh, so the third point there, at the time of Christ's return, there will be a general resurrection, both of believers and unbelievers. That's New Testament saints, Old Testament saints, and everybody, frankly, who has existed in time who's not dead. So the living, obviously, aren't going to be resurrected, but everybody else is going to be resurrected at that time. After the resurrection, living believers shall be transformed and glorified. So if you are a believer and the second coming happens, that is when you are going to be transformed. You're going to get your glorified body. That's when the rapture happens. And then final judgment follows immediately. They hold that there's only one day of judgment. So there is not a separate judgment for believers before the Bema seat and unbelievers. All of this is taking place before the same throne. And so they would say that you're going to have the glory of God revealed in all men, and that is going to be by their redemption or by their condemnation. Secondly, that uh, it finally, and on the, the grandest scale possible, shows the, the great uh, antithesis in history. So the, the idea that you've had those who are the enemies of God and those who are the sons of God, the, 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 the children of God. That is when that is put on display, on display. God's people and God's enemies. 
And then that same judgment is going to reveal the degree of reward or the degree of punishment based on your works. After that judgment, you go into the eternal state. Now, there are some things that have to happen for the eternal state to, to occur, right? That's when you end up with a new heaven and a new earth. There. Now, their view of the passages in Isaiah that a premillennialist would attribute to the millennial kingdom actually happens, according to the Amil view, in the eternal state. Although I'm not sure what they do with the end of the book of Ezekiel. I, I don't know what they do with that. And we will cover that I, do you under, do you understand what I'm when I what I mean when I say the end of the book of Ezekiel? Okay. There's a new temple. There is. There are sacrifices. the The land is redistributed in a different fashion than it was done originally. So, in the millennial, if you have a temple, and you have sacrifices, what do you still have? Sin. You can't have sin in the eternal state. And, and frankly, when you get into chapters 40 to 48 of Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel a vision that is very, very detailed for a future temple that as yet has not been built because it's going to take up all of Temple Mount. I think I told you that story before. Pacing it off. I'm sure I'm on video and probably on record in Jerusalem. What's that guy doing? Obviously, he's a terrorist. He's, he's trying to set things up here. He's measuring things. Pardon me? Say what? Well, in reading it that, uh, they would say that yes, um, the prophecies about the Jews as a nation coming to redemption would happen. There's just not simply the rewards for that or the, the consequences for that are assigned to the church in essence. So um, when you look at uh, Ezekiel 36, you have the, um, the new covenant. In Ezekiel 37, you have the story of the dry bones, the vision of the dry bones, which is talking about the salvation, the redemption of national Israel. Second half of chapter 37 is the two sticks, where he's to take two sticks, and they are representative of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they are joined together and fastened together, never again to be separated. National Israel is going to be national Israel. Again, there are no 10 lost tribes. Chapter 38 and 39, you talk about Gog and Magog. That's talking about the great battle that is going to occur before the millennial kingdom. And then chapters 40 to 48 are about the millennial kingdom. 
You've got this temple. You've got the sacrifices. You've got descriptions that are very similar to things that we'll see in Revelation 21 and 22. You've got a big river that's coming down out of the throne in the temple. And it gets deeper as it goes along. And there's trees growing along either side of the river. And they all bring forth their fruit in a season. And you can't go out this one door over here because that's where the king comes in. And when you go through, you have to come in this door and you can't go out by the second door. That's anticipating traffic patterns. What happens when somebody tries to go out the inn and there is a line? So the line comes in, it's anticipated, there's going to be a bunch of people there. All that's in the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. So if it doesn't mean, if it's not talking about the millennial kingdom, if you're going to hold that it doesn't, hold, that does not talk about the millennial kingdom, then you've got to come up with an explanation for what it does mean because it's revealed and therefore we're responsible for it. So again, um, they will acknowledge that there's got to be, it's all over the Old Testament, and frankly, it's all over the New Testament that there's going to be the redemption of the nation. You can't get away from Romans 11, 9, 10, and 11. Okay, questions? Okay, okay, Gunner. went to Israel with uh, Sean and Juliet, we had a chance to go up to the Golan Heights, and we, we went to a movie theater with our, uh, with our guide, and they showed us a film that talked about the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Uh, if you want to see the hand of God in history, you go look at those. vastly outnumbered. Some of those guys took their tanks. They didn't even have shells. They took their tanks and made themselves targets. Outnumbered 100 to 1? And the Syrians turned around and left. That was the hand of God. Same thing happened in the, in, the, in the Sinai. And so again, um, yeah, and they, they probably don't do anything from this century or last century. And I guarantee you the War College doesn't go back and use the Old Testament stuff because I've never seen the marching band go out in front of the SEAL team to go around a city yet. All right.
Now, post-millennialism, you would say, wait, so there's amillennialism, we're in the millennial kingdom now. Post-millennialism would hold probably the same thing. The reason I say probably is because the millennial uh, reign occurs prior to the second coming of Christ. We just can't be positive as to when that millennial kingdom actually starts. Because the post-mill view is that this current age that we're in is going to transition into the millennial kingdom. And that millennial kingdom is going to be the golden age. That is where the world is being thoroughly evangelized and not just evangelized. The vast majority of people that are on the planet are redeemed. All of a sudden, the Christians are the majority and the unbelievers are the minority. And when things become good enough, then Jesus is going to come back. That's why these folks are going to be so um, emphasizing on social reform, on political reform, because they're looking at it from the point of this is going to improve so that, that again, that's, the, that's the, the basis of the millennial kingdom so that then Jesus is going to be able to come back. So, for instance, when, um, ooh, I can't remember the exact verse in, in Peter where it talks about hastening the return. It's in 2 Peter, I want to say it's 2 Peter 3. Thank you, honey. So 1 Peter 3.12, start in verse 11 to the beginning of the sentence. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? They look at that and they say, it's our job. When we make things better, then that's going to make that day happen all the much sooner. Society immediately prior to the second coming is largely going to be dominated by righteousness and peace. A lot of people who are uh, post-mill, they're going to hold to some form of preterism. And remember when we talked about preterism last week, that's the idea that uh, much of the events that are talked about uh, as far as the tribulation and all of that, that occurred in the first century and was culminated there basically with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, there are a lot of branches that fall under the tree of post-millennialism. So when you hear the term, okay, Christian reconstruction, that's post-mill. Does everybody, okay, do you, do, do you all understand what Christian reconstructionism is? 
Okay, Christian Reconstructionism is the idea that um, you're taking the law and you are applying it to current society, including punishments for breaking the law. So they would take the death penalty and they would expand it into things beyond murder. That would include uh, homosexuality. It would include abortion. It would include, pardon me, infidelity. There's a lot of things that would end up falling into there. It, so it's the application of the law to current society, believers and unbelievers. Now, there are several um, branches, there, there are several subshoots of that. So when you hear about theonomy, that's going to fall under that. Um, when you hear about dominion theology, that's falling into that. Seven mountains theology, that falls into that. The majority view of postmillennialism holds that there will be an apostasy before the second coming. The minority view, they're like Avis. They're second best, but they're trying harder. And the, the minority view is starting to take more root. And that is that there is no apostasy. You, it gets better, it gets better, it gets better, and Jesus comes back. So again, most of your Christian leaders who play in the political sphere are post-millennial. Jerry Falwell, D. James Kennedy, Francis Schaeffer, Howard Phillips, Pat Robertson, James Dobson. All of those guys are from the post-tribulational camp. Pardon me? Post-millennial, thank you. I'm sorry. See, even I get messed up with all these things here. Post-millennial camp. Yep. And so, again, the idea here, uh, Bonson, Kenneth Gentry, uh, Dave Hunt, um, you know. so the, here's the thing. Okay, uh, let's go here. The homeschool movement largely came out of post-millennialism. When you go to, uh, at least, I know in with uh, the, the group that we were affiliated with when we were homeschooling, oh, there were a few names that were very uh, mentioned when it came to theology. Uh, R.J. Rush Dooney, Cornelius Van Til. These are guys who are in the post-mill camp. And so the idea of homeschooling was to take back dominion of education. So that was where a lot of that stuff came from. Ma'am. Yes, Sri. Well, the day of the Lord, um, I don't have a real good answer for that. The, they would say, I, I think what they would come back with is that much of the day of the Lord occurred in the first century.
there's a lot of spiritualization, and again, that's also true with the Amil view, is that things that, that we would tend to take more literally, they tend to take more figuratively. And again, uh, I mean, that's not, uh, that's not a slam on any of these men, on their, on their, uh, their sincerity, their devotion to Christ at all. It's just that they have a different way of looking at some of these things and it influences how they act. Andrew. Not at all. So the question is, for whoever didn't hear it for the tape too, was it wrong for those people to try to take dominion over education and educate their kids at home rather than sending them off to the state? No. I got no problem with that, and I'd better not have any problem with it since we homeschooled all 10 of our kids. And train their kids. Absolutely. Oh, okay, so yeah, we, we might agree with them. Absolutely. There are a lot of things on the, these lists. I agree with entirely, entirely. It's a question of I guess it's a question again of weight. Where do you put the which which scriptures take priority over others in order to come up with an interpretation of something? And so again, uh, there are a lot of things. Should Christians be involved in politics? Yeah, they should. Absolutely. When the righteous reign, the people rejoice, right? That's absolutely true. I'd rather vote for a Christian, you know, five, six days a week and twice on Sunday. Absolutely. Do I think that that, by having Christians in power, that that is going to change the flow of history? No. No. So again, um, you know, should we have Christians on school boards? Absolutely. Absolutely. If God puts you in that position and you're able to do that, go for it. I'll vote for you if you're in my district. Andrew. Am I saying that they couldn't change the culture? No. Can they affect change in the culture? Well, what changes the culture? Well, what specifically changes the culture? Individual redemption is what changes a culture. So people, when they, are, when they turn to the gospel and they are redeemed and they are saved and they change, they are renewed in, the thinking, in their thinking, and they, they act in accordance with God's word, when you have a vast swath of that culture go on to that path, that is absolutely going to change that culture. Obviously, 
Well, you know, it's interesting. When Constantine became the emperor of Rome, was that a good thing or a bad thing for the church? What came out of that? Splinters, complacency. Got to tell you, you want, listen, you want to have refinement in the church? There's a very simple way to do that. Have some persecution. Got, you know, look, when you have persecution, the wannabes, they don't stick around. The tares, they split. Why get burned? For something that you really don't believe, that you really don't buy. And so the idea, again, that, that's the danger of that. Of that. All right, we were talking about this in an elders meeting the other day. The danger of following a formula. If we do this and this and this and this, then this ends up being the outcome. Oh, true. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the question is, there's danger with complacency as well, and that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. So we're not to sit back and not engage the culture and not do the things that, frankly, we were commanded to by Jesus, right? In our going, we're to make disciples. And so, again, it's not... It's not um, that it's it's the idea that if this if if we are successful in um, in preaching and and many 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 people come to Christ, then we're making society well enough that Jesus can come back. That's how they would look at this. All right, it's five after. Is there a burning question? Because there's next week, we didn't get through everything. So next week, we get to do the historic premillennialism. And maybe in the following six, six days, I can figure out exactly how to explain that one. All right, let's pray. Father, again, these are things that, these are deep waters to wade in. Um, your word has much to say about these things. And it's easy to, to set some of these things up as um, that anything from, another, from a different view than, than I would happen to hold, that we would happen to hold, that somehow that must be wrong, and that's just not true. And so, again, Father, help us to, as we look at these things, to, to try to see if you've revealed these things. Help us to... to understand it, that we may do it. That we would not be those who sit back just because, you know, we have a particular view that doesn't mean that we act in a way that's contrary to what you've instructed us to do. Again, help us as we're, help us to be patient, help us to be forbearing, help us to be humble, Help us to be loving, gracious, 
And most of all, in those areas where we have so much in common, may we link arms as we wait for the day of your glorious return. That we would long for that blessed hope. In Christ's name, amen.